1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, we'll, I could, we could do this chapter two times more and not repeat any of the points. There's so much about this fool Saul that you can be on overload. And of course, the reader is to come away saying, Lord, do I do any of this stuff? Am I like this? I hope not. This evening's title is to the message, The Gallant Prince. And that will be about Jonathan, the son of Saul. He is the crown prince, the elder son of Saul. And in contrast to the self-absorbed King Saul, his father, here is this gallant man in the faith, on the battlefield, just an honorable uh, believer. And um, is amplified by his father's fool's touch. That's what his father had. Everything he touched suffered because of his complete idiocy before the Lord. And he gets me angry. Reading, I, get a, I don't get in the flesh, but there's a righteous indignation. And I've got to watch that, of course, because it could just get carried away. But you look at his life and you say, where is his sense of reason? His mercy is not a part of his vocabulary. Honor does not belong to him. Moral bravery, are you kidding me? What about just insight? What about God? I would rather face twice as many enemies than have this person on my side. That's pretty bad. I'd rather double the enemy than have your help. Imagine being told that. A menace to everything good. Well, in this 14th chapter, the story is continuing from chapter 13, where Jonathan took his thousand men, presumably, and attacked the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines then amassed their forces together, and they were so fierce just in their approach to the battlefield that uh, Saul's army began to desert, run away, cross over Jordan as refugees, hide in caves. Well, that pretty much the story stops, but not for Jonathan. Because Jonathan understands these Philistines are oppressing them. This is not just, you know, uh, just their occupants in the land that don't belong. It's more than that. They're harming the people of God. And he has this righteous indignation himself against these Philistines uh, being so powerful, prohibiting the Jews from owning anything that's iron that they could use for a weapon. We look now at the first verse, because we've got 52 of them. So somebody ought to alert the children's ministry that they're going to go to two services this evening. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Well, now, evidently, the two, Jonathan had 1,000 men and Saul had 2,000 and they were in separate camps. And now Jonathan is with his father. The attrition, the, the desert is leaving. Uh, they've, they've combined their forces, evidently. And uh, the Philistines there are massed for war, but there's no war. There's no battle. Nothing's happening. And so he says, come let, to his armor bearer, come let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. He's, he's, he's agitated. It, this irritation comes from, the, again, these Philistine tormentors. And he's looking for God to open a door to do something about this, using him to do it. And he's quite bold in this move of his. This is not a little thing. He says here at the bottom of verse 1, he did not tell his father. This is an unauthorized covert operation. Well, of course he's not going to tell Saul because Saul, you know, don't do it. You know, he's always just, he just blocks everything. When David, later, when David says, I can take this, this giant, Saul is the one. No, you can't. No, no, just negative, no courage, no outlook, no sensible inquiry. And I think Jonathan knows that. So he just tells his armor bearer, let's go take these guys out. Verse 2, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. And so of the 3,000, it appears that this is all they have left. Now, he's sitting under the 
pomegranate tree because he's pooped from resisting Samuel. Sarcasm. Jonathan sees his father's inactivity when there needs to be action. When they, have, they, they started this, they need to finish it. That's Jonathan's thinking. The language, I think, throughout the, the life of Saul in the scripture is very deliberate. I don't think they're casual. He's just sitting under the pomegranate tree. I think it's deliberate. This is Saul. This is who he is. And instinctively, his son, the hero that he is, he wants to provoke an action. He knows God is with him. He doesn't know the, the details of God being with him, but he's, he's willing to explore it and find this out. He's a gallant character in contrast to ridiculous Saul. At the bottom of verse 2, it says, The people who were with him were about 600, and as stated, this is, these are the uh, reduced force. Why? Why didn't those men say, We're with you, Saul. We've got your back through thick or thin. Is that too much to ask? The armor-bearer of Jonathan has that attitude. The armor-bearer of Jonathan says, whatever you do, I'm with you. Verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, Yahweh's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Well, I'm, I'm going to pass over much of that. You can comment on so much in here about Ichabod and Phineas and all that, but it's, again, a long chapter, and we'll try to stick to the points related to the gallantry of Jonathan. But there are priests among the troops. Uh, that is important. Uh, God's presence is there. These are the people of God. You would think that that would have a greater... You would think that Saul would appreciate that. But to get a fool to appreciate gifts from God or otherwise is very difficult. There are those that are, are you come up in ministries under men of God who are solid and, and have much to give and they don't appreciate it. You have children born in a church that's solid. They don't appreciate it. Not all of them, of course. It's up to the individual. Uh, here you have uh, Saul and he has the high priest, the ark and the ephod likely with him together. He doesn't appreciate this. In fact, he's going to disrespect it. He's going to interrupt the use of these gifts that are given to him so that he can implement strength in his own power, which is just a fiasco. And verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boses, and the name of the other was Sina. The front of one faced northward, verse 5, opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Uh, this n really not much for us this evening on our theme, except to say, uh, bo Boses, is, it means shining. And the way this pass is set up to go through it, uh, the sun just would hit the one side of that rock boses, and the other rock would uh, right across from it was just always in the shade, and, and so it's called thorny. Um, it really doesn't have anything to do except you got what I got. Verse, well, because you got, I had to do a little map actually. Let me see if I got this right. And just, all right, sometimes I have to chart it out like that. Verse 6, And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing restrains Yahweh from saving by many or by few. Question, how come Jonathan understands God and, and his father and so many others do not? <clears throat> Jonathan won't lose this. He will go to his grave understanding who God is with a keener understanding of who God is, and so many that <clears throat> are around him. Life is just so much like two thieves on a cross. Two people hear the same sermon. One comes away blessed, saved, going to paradise. The other one's going to hell. Such is life. Uh, but i got to say so in that for me personally, as does everyone else. Jonathan understood enough about God to trust God with his life, because that's what's going on. Here. He's not trusting him with, you know, just money or investments or some future thing. This is his life. If he messes up here, the Philistines will kill him and the armor bearer. 
who evidently this armor bearer is close enough both to God and Jonathan to agree with Jonathan. Jonathan. All this again started uh, in the last chapter. Jonathan, uh, Jonathan is seeing it through. They're going to demonstrate their verbal commitment with action by the time we get to verse 13. So it's not all talk. Again, in contrast to Saul sitting under the tree, these two men are out there looking to have something take place by God. Models of great faith. And he is clearly prompted by the Holy Spirit of God. Because he says, for nothing restrains Yahweh from saving by many or by few. That's biblical according to their scripture in Deuteronomy with Gideon. God demonstrated this. You have to have the prompting. It must be the leading. You cannot just read the Bible lesson and say, that's for me. Uh, I guess that's kind of illustrated with Peter wanting to walk on water. It's got, it's, uh, there's a lot more involved to it than just, just the desire. Anyway, he uses a term of contempt, a derogatory term for these uncircumcised Philistines. These guys don't love Yahweh. They worship statues and they cause misery as a result. Verse 7, um, pause there. Idolatry is not a harmless thing. And that's what the Bible teaches us. That lives are affected by false beliefs about God. The entire uh, Soviet Union, their empire, and all the nations they put under their iron grip prove that. And they're not the only ones. Verse 7, so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Great leaders get more done with great men who allow themselves to be led. Here's a great leader in Jonathan. Here's a man that is allowing himself to be led. He's not resisting. I use this verse in premarital counseling, whereas you have the, the head of the home and the helpmate, and they are to be going in the same direction, not rowing opposite directions, resisting each other. And this is an excellent illustration, and these two men is going to be carried through in, in the battle. Where Jonathan knocks them down, the armor bearer comes and finishes them off. They're working in unison. But back to these people of God. Numbers chapter 1. This is when God was uh, having Moses number the men for war and all that would be involved with the the future history of Israel. And we read there, These are the names of men who shall stand with you, says God to Moses. And then the names are given by the tribes. Luke twenty two twenty eight. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Well, good leaders are really, their skills, their abilities are wasted if they hunt great followers. Somehow that's become derogatory to be a follower um, in the minds of, of some. But leaders who follow the Lord the Lord will provide those who will follow them, and that's how things get done. Uh, I don't know of exceptions to that. I'm sure there is always that one or two that's an exception, but not, not the pattern. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. What if the armor bearer had not been on board? What if he said, I, I don't want to go? And Jonathan might have said, okay, let's go back to the camp. And got, fired him, got another guy, and went back to try it again. Uh, that would have been all right. Get a different esquire. Uh, a squire or an esquire uh, is from the Latin to the French. It's an armor bearer of the night. When you hire a lawyer who has that title Esquire, I'm going to carry your shield for you. And the idea of carrying the shield and prepping the horse and getting ready is so that the knight can win. Has enough strength, hasn't been, you know, bogged down by carrying his own tools. It helps him put the armor on. Well, at this point in the history, there wasn't much armor around. There was some. We read later, Jonathan had armor, tried to give it to David. But... Uh, here is a man who truly is a shield bearer. He is there to support Jonathan any way he can. He is determined to be the best second fiddler there is. And uh, it's quite an honorable position. 
by going to the Philistines and announcing themselves, they're going to take away the element of surprise. And they're going to just come right out and say, here we are, verse 9. If they say thus to us, wait till we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For Yahweh has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Either plan, whether they stand and wait or they are told to come, if the Philistines engage them, there's going to be a fight. I kind of scratch my head at some of this. I say, Jonathan, you do know. You've kind of boxed yourself in. But uh, either way, he is aggressive with his faith, and the opportunity to battle on behalf of God's people is here. Admiral Nelson, the great British admiral during the Napoleonic War with uh, Great Britain, he says, no captain can do very wrong who places his ship alongside that of the enemy. Well, we Christians are supposed to place our gospel alongside the unbeliefs of the enemy to make something happen for the truth. And it doesn't take any craziness to do that. In fact, it takes the opposite. It takes sanity to preach the gospel, to engage people. I'm a firm believer. That's the biblical pattern. It's what I've tried to follow, and not just me, of course. It's just uh, to, to go to people and become known to them, and they to you, to establish a relationship, not a fellowship, but a relationship. That's how souls get saved, was one way. Not the only way, but that is a big one. Maybe that's why we don't see a lot of souls saved. Are a lot of Christians afraid to simply share their faith and be witnesses for Christ instead of lawyers? Um, I, I don't know. But I sure like to talk about it with people. But not at the moment. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Well, this is the voice of Satan. Mocking the believer, belittling them. Well, Jonathan had his chance. He's uncircumcised Philistines. That was a fact. It was also a fact that many of the Jews had hidden themselves in holes, and now they're being taunted. But Satan does not get the last laugh when God's people will recover themselves. Verse 12, Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for Yahweh has delivered them into the hand of Israel. So he knows this is the uh, a leading and agreement he had with God. If they call to us, we know we're going to win this thing. And he's going to claim nation uh, a victory for the nation. This coming will show you something. is not like, come here and we'll show you this new Lego set we bought. Or, you know, just... <laughs> It will teach you something, and it's probably how to do just a wonderful tuna um, casserole. So, of course, he's, he means come down here and we're, we're going to kill you. There's really nothing comical about this when it was taking place. Verse 13, And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan as he came after him. His armor-bearer killed them. Uh, so... <laughs> A dynamic duo. Here, this climbing up, I, I read this and say, boy, you're vulnerable. <laughs> if, if I were in the Philistine camp, all is fair in love and war, I would pick you off at that point. But the, uh, you know, Marcus of Quinsbury rules. Uh, anyway, apparently, uh, he did strike them down, and the armor bearer would come behind him, and... Here, Jonathan, he prayed, he planned, and with the help of the Lord and a loyal helper, they were victorious. Verse 14, that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within about a half acre of land. That first slaughter was a busy day. It's amazing what two can do if they're working together and not resisting each other. Again, I wish we had the name of the armor bearer. I'm sure we would see children named after this man. But the Holy Spirit has decided that would not be. Uh, verse, well, this 
half a yoke of land is really what it is, where it says about a half an acre, it's half a yoke. And a yoke of land was the area a pair of oxen could plow in a day. So in a day they could do an acre, but uh, a half a yoke would be half an acre. Verse 14, And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Verse 16, Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. And so Jonathan and his armor bearers start this uh, domino effect. The fear hits the camp of the Philistines. They don't know what's going on. In that Philistine camp, there are Philistine troops. There are mercenaries that are not Philistines. And there may have been uh, Jews. There were Jews in the camp. What their role was is not clear. We'll make comment on that in a little bit. Uh, but these forces are self-destructing. Jonathan had caused a stampede. Fear is contagious and it is spreading through the camp and no one knows what's going on. Have the mercenaries turned on us? Uh, What is is happening? And so their line collapses in fear and confusion. Verse 17, Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And they called the roll and surprisingly... Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Saul, his camp is on a higher ground. He can see this happening, uh, evidently across a a valley or or straight across, but he has a good view to where this is taking place. Again, the two armies, uh, Saul knows where they are, and they know where Saul is. Nothing's happening. It's going to be that way when Goliath shows up in a latter battle. But why call the roll to see who's missing? Does it matter? It's Louis the rag collector. He's not with us. Oh, no. Oh, why, why would he even ask such a silly question? Well, we must know. Uh, Jonathan, again, it speaks as though he knew to get out of there without asking to go do it. I believe Saul's motive is, who is stealing my thunder? Who is making things happen here? Because that's how he thought. That's, everything was about him. Is really going to come out in this chapter. In verse 18, And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Uh, there's some question whether it is meant the ark of God or the ephod of God. I think there's some interchangeability to the events taking place. The theologians can... Go back and forth on it. The the Septuagint has ephod. Uh, The Masoretic text has ark. But characteristic of Saul, he takes a step in the right direction, and then he takes the next step in the wrong direction, and he doesn't recover. That is Saul. And you're going to see that blunder in one moment. But the high priest is with them. The ark is likely there, along with the ephod with the presence of the Urim and the Thummim, which the Jews would discern God's will. And they are now activated to find out what they should do next. In verse 19, Now it happened while Saul talked to the priests that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. I I don't know. Has anybody missed that? Does anybody here like, uh, I don't know what that means? He's saying, stop praying. Don't seek God. I'll take it from here. Never mind God. No time for faith. No time for religion. No time for the righteous men. It's time for men of action. As though righteous men were not men of action. It was one of them that was causing the, the, the battle to, to begin with. His heart. His heart was just cluttered with stones. Matthew chapter 13, verse 21 Speaking of the seed that fell amongst the stones, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. That's all. He hears the battle escalating. It's just two men on his his side causing all this. What is Saul doing? What is his claim to, to obedience before God or his people as king? 
this is just one more place Saul failed, his stony heart. Solomon failed in the parable, and just in passing, Matthew 13, 22. Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. That was Solomon. But still, Solomon, I do not believe, was as bad as Saul. Solomon had some issues, big issues. So unlike David, though, David had a moment in his life when he was not yet king, and he's running from Saul, and he became desperate. He even goes over to the Philistines. And when he returns from the Philistines, he said, Dave, we can't have you with us on the battlefield. You, you might turn on us. And he sent him home, and he goes back, and his home is gone. The Amalekites came and stole all their treasures and their women and children. And they wanted to kill David, his 600 men. As, uh, you know, leaders weren't supposed to make these kind of mistakes. And we read this in 1 Samuel 30. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, in Yahweh God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. You see the contrast? Here Saul is under pressure. He's acting like he's a righteous king, and he's, you know, the Hebrew's Hebrew, but he's not. David was the man of God through and through. This is the one that Samuel said just a little while ago, that God will find a king after his own heart. The battle Saul felt belonged to him, not to Yahweh. Always he took the lower level of faith, until it was not faith at all. And so by interrupting the effort to seek God's counsel, he shows he's unfit to be the king of God's people, and uh, <clears throat> reveals that he thinks he knows better than God. I, I just can't Im- Im- imagine this. Not without guilt and not, not without him at least saying, I know I should wait, I just can't. No, he doesn't do that. Not to worry. Saul will make matters worse in this chapter. His stupidity is just warming up. It is boundless. There's no end to this man. He's a monster. And, uh, you know, maybe if he was still alive and in the neighborhood, you'd have, you know, you pray for him. You hope that he just snaps out of this. But his chapter is closed. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. So now the Philistines are fighting themselves. It's not the only time in the scripture we read about uh, such a breakdown within the camp of enemy forces. In verse 21, Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So there, these Jews were amongst the Philistines. Were they refugees? Were they deserters? Were they mercenaries? Or were they just oppressed? Maybe they were forced to haul water for the Philistines and take care of their horses and get feed for their horses and troops and stuff like that. It's not exactly clear. But we do know this, that the opportunity came for them to turn on these Philistine oppressors, and that's what they did. And I think that's what it is, because there's no, you know language here that insults them other than being with the Philistines. There's nothing that says, and these men were traitors or something like that. Verse 14, uh, verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So now this is, this is taking time. Word is getting out, and these hours are, are ticking away. This is not all happening instantly. Uh, Gideon, you know, Gideon sent 300 men home. Well, he kept 300, sorry, he kept 300, he sent 27,000 home. And they, but they came back and joined the fight later, uh, later on. Uh, these are the ones Satan mocked as weak. And so the question or the thought is, 
have each person asking themselves, have, have I ever cowered and failed on the battlefield as, as these Jews did who deserted the camp? And if the answer is yes, and most likely everyone's going to at some point fail, of course, uh, we think of Peter and when Jesus restored him in John 21 and said, Peter, when, you know, when you're going to die a martyr's death, you're going to die a hero of the kingdom, Peter. You failed me when you denied me. How could you not? You were so devastated and confused, but you're going to recover. And it's just like the Lord, always, no matter. And so, so if that's true, and it is, it was true for Saul. He could have recovered out. He could have got out of this, but there's never a step in that direction. He just buckles down, buckles down, circle the wagons against Yahweh. But he never opens his heart and yields. Even when David's ministering to the psychotic nut, he just, you know, he's on the threshold of turning around and he does not. What does he do? He tries to kill the man that is playing spiritual music. Uh, verse 23. Well, Yahweh saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth Aven. Without Saul's prayers, incidentally. Um, God is moving independent of Saul, or else things would get ugly for his people. Verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my, my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And suffering him again. He's at it again. And he's going to get worse. He's not done. This, uh, just, the story doesn't really start lifting up till we get to chapter 16 when David starts coming on the scene. Then we start getting some, you know, happier moments. David and Samuel, but uh, this man. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Oh, yeah, they're exhausted from battle. Battle involves you know, swinging and fighting and running. And uh, they're, they're exhausted. Saul's vow effectively debilitates his forces, his own army. He weakens them. You don't need the enemy to weaken them. He's doing it. For Saul had placed the people under oath saying, well, let's say this. Thanks, Saul. He's not a generator of blessings. He's a drain of them. And uh, cursed, he, this is what he says, Cursed is the, is the man who eats food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. It's useless. So he thinks he's helping. Yes, this will keep the men charging. You can't make steam without water. You cannot, they're not robots. So none of the people tasted food. It sounds like they're at an ice convention, you know. Did you taste a shrimp? Uh, no, this is, this is not, they didn't eat. While he's at his command post, he's not running around fighting for his life. Uh, infantry warfare, as I said, involves much running. And even if there were cavalry on horses, it would be exhausting. And the oath, all it did was weaken the people to the enemy's delight. Because the enemy's going to get away. A lot of them are going to survive because of this. Verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to the forest, and there was honey on the ground. Well, God had said this was going to be a land of milk and honey. There was so much honey coming from the hives that it was just, you know, flowing down onto the ground. It was all over the place. You didn't have to deal with the bees. You could just stick out a stick and, and uh, get the honey that way. This is a reminder that God was over them, that this was their land. Just as God said, it is the land flowing with milk and honey. And in the midst of battle, here's this flash of confidence. But it's all ruined by one person. One. Imagine if there was a planet of Saul's. That would be hell. <laughs> Verse 26. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath was the one that had the power to kill them, which is Saul. Sugar would have provided instant energy on that day. And one fool can interfere with the blessings of God. 
even from a remote location. He doesn't even have to be present. All he has to do is his dirt. I guess part of the frustration on covering this is the personal experience that there are people like this. There are people in Christianity. They may not be Christians, but they're in Christendom. And they do such things. Other ages have lived through worse. The dark ages, when the popes ruled the world. Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance was brightened. (laughs) He is too busy doing God's work on the battlefield to hear this petty little oath, this curse. Anybody who eats food is (laughs) shut up. And here's Jonathan just doing God's work and he's oblivious to the fact that his own father is going to try to kill him for this and insist upon killing him for this. And wasn't there enough Philistines to kill? You had to go seek your own child? Verse 28. And, well, okay, we'll get to that later. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day, and the people were faint. Uh, I don't know if this is, I, look, if I can't eat, you can't have it. I don't care if you are the prince. Nobody, I don't know if it's that or if it's fear that, hey, if I don't speak up, later on it's going to come out that I didn't say anything and then I get in trouble. Because Saul he created this environment of fear. Everybody's afraid to be who they are. Take him out of this picture and you have a glorious victory for God. I don't want to be that person in life. Where God says, you know, you're the one that spoiled it. If I just took you out, everybody would have been blessed. But you're the troublemaker. You're the one that gossips. You're the one that says this about that one. You're the one that steals. You're the one that brings, you know, guilt to everybody. I don't want to be him. I mean, it's, you, some, guilt may come when you're right, and it's your place to, to administer the truth, and the, the guilty are guilty. There's no other way, to, you, you know, you can't. The guilty are offended because they're guilty. The message in that is, don't be guilty. Work to not be that way. And if you're busted, repent. Verse 28. uh, Well, I read 28. 29. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. He says, look at the facts. This is what we need. We're dying out here. And it's going to get worse for these men. They're not yet at the end. They will get there pretty soon. Uh, But it's a simple solution, canceled by the leader. Verse 30, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found for now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter of the Philistines? Yep. How much better, he says, how much better, a whole lot better. Verse 31. Okay, pause there. Now, don't answer out loud. But am I the only one that can't stand this guy? I just got a reality check for myself. It's like, I don't see what the fuss is, Pastor. Saul's a good boy. I mean, the words are right there. Don't be angering up on me if any of you are like, mm, you're being harsh on Saul. You're saying that because you weren't in his army that day. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to uh, Ajalon. So the people were very faint. About 15 miles of, of fighting. Not just, it was bad enough to walk 15 miles. But to fight 15 miles. Um, you know, run, chase, look, seek. You know, all of that goes, in, that goes with war. This is the same Ajalon of Joshua's great victory where the sun stopped working. Verse 32. Well, the sun stopped doing, pulling the earth so much. Uh, And the people rushed to the spoil and took sheep, oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Saul's fault, nobody else. Nobody else's fault, his. He created this mess. They're too famished to properly bleed the animals according to Levitical law because they're starving. 
And they've become almost savage. They know this is wrong. They don't want to do this. But this is a desperate situation. I don't know. I remember once in the service, we were out of water. It was very hot. And there was no, when the water finally showed up, men weren't so nice to each other. They, they didn't completely lose it, but you could see it in their eyes. They weren't going, you better hurry up and get off the line. Uh, it, it was a very intense moment and quite an education for an 18-year-old to see you know, men like that. This is how it was this day in, in verse 32. Now verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against Yahweh by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Well, I would like to say that Saul is saying, You've done treacherously to me. That is some of it. But it is really, it seems, treacherous. You're you're breaking the law of God. And, of course, Saul connected that with Good luck. You know, you, you, you reduced God to a servant. God was to bring luck and the people were to abide by the, their oaths. And if they broke their oath, then God wouldn't bless them. That's how he's looking at this. And he is the cause, of course. The single character. Uh, always, always, always accusing everyone else but himself when it is he who is the problem. As you know, I'm no fan of psychology, but they, they have a word for people like this. Uh, you know, we call them sinners, irresponsible, incompetent, insensitive, paranoid. They, narcissistic psychopath, narcissistic, check, uh, sociopath, check, psychopath, on the way. He's not fully there, he's getting there. He knows how to pretend He knows how to give you what you're looking for without meaning it. He has no intention of following God, but he has every intention of using God to get what he wants. And this uh, is a common practice. Well, not common to everybody, but it's there are people that are like this to this very day. And uh, there always have been. Imagine Machiavelli, those of you who know Machiavelli, imagine if he was king. He'd probably be like this. Anyway, he says, bring over a stone, uh, a stone to slaughter. That's the whole idea here where he says, you've done treacherously. Uh, Roll a large stone to me this day. So there probably was something that he could point at and say, roll that over here. And this would give them the tilt when they slaughtered the animal to bleed. The blood would would flow out properly. Um, Just gravity doing its thing before they're probably just cutting them on the ground and not even waiting as they just butchered for the meat. Verse 34, Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against Yahweh by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Yeah, it sounds like he's you know careful about Yahweh. <laughs> In a minute, he's going to be trying, he's insisting to kill his son for dipping his spear in honey. So let's not for one moment think this man is sane. There's something, that there's something right about him or righteous about him. Uh, to Saul, again, it was a matter of spoiling his luck by offending his God. He was just, that's how the pagans viewed their God. He's not upholding God's word. Uh, the only time he upholds God's word is if he can manipulate somebody through doing it. And again, don't write this story off as something that only happened there, then. There are still wolves in sheep's clothing. Verse 35, then Saul built an altar to Yahweh. This was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. Uh, Yeah, well, he's kind of forced to do it. He's not doing it. He didn't, if these folks did not violate the code, he never would have put this altar up. See, he's a reaction. He's an opportunity here. He's an opportunist. And so he used the law to his advantage. But he's not going to listen to God. And that's why the next chapter, Samuel's going to say, God strips the kingdom from you, I mean, as, as he already announced. We won't read of another altar built by Saul, though this, the wording here points that this was the first 
altar, which, of course, assumes there were others. But did any of them count? Just the whole of Isaiah chapter 1. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I don't want to know about your feast, your new moons, your Sabbath. Keep it. In vain you worship me. So this altar doesn't even count. And this rest of the story is going to tell you that he disqualifies himself from being taken seriously by God. Because he told God, enough, I don't want to hear it. Withdraw the priest. I'll take it from here. Imagine, imagine Christians praying for something and someone steps in and says, Dad, don't worry about God. Let's go do something that's going to get the job done. Verse 36. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So the priest still singed by his rude interference. They're disturbed by this. And so they let's get God back into this, Saul. Verse 37, so Saul asked counsel of God. Saul asked counsel of God, which he would not have done had the priest not spoke up. And then it says, uh, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand, to the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. God just didn't answer you cannot say that, well, because what Saul did really wasn't, you know, that important. When you have this response, the next time he goes to God, God's got the phone off the hook, not taking calls from him. How we treat God matters. That is the point for every human being. How you treat God counts. This will not be the last time the Lord refuses to answer Saul. In verse 14 uh, pardon me, verse 38, chapter 14. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. God's silence was taken by Saul as evidence that somebody else sinned. Not him. He's not even on the list. He's, in fact, he's going to put him himself on the list with rotten reasons. He concluded from this, that sin had been committed, which caused God to not want to hear from him. But he never thought of his rash oath. He never thought of shutting the priest down. He never thought of that he, caused the, he put the pressure unnecessarily on the people. His lack of empathy for another person's plight, difficulty. He just has no compassion for anybody else. But he has it for himself. And what about his own merciless, murderous heart? We'll get to that in verse 44. So we read here in verse 38, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin is. This is sickening. He's ready to shed innocent and gallant blood over nothing while the Philistines are getting away. And God will use this moment to expose Saul in front of the people as a homicidal king to be. Verse 39. For Yahweh, he continu it continues. For as Yahweh lives, who saves Israel, though it be on Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among the people answered him. So Saul the dud king makes yet another oath. Even if my son is guilty, why we, God is not answering me, the king. If my son Jonathan is the cause of God not talking to me, we're going to kill him. Now, let's, let's go around and raise hands. Who likes Saul? What is there to like about this fellow? There's not enough love in Saul to make a speck. I think Mark Twain said in one of his books, uh, Not Enough Brains to Bait a Fish Hook. Well, <laughs> yet his self-love, his love for himself, is immense. He says, but not a man among all the people answered him. Are they thinking, what an obnoxious fool of a king we have? Are they thinking that? What are, what, I mean, what are they thinking? They, they knew Jonathan took the honey. And uh, 
they also knew he never heard the oath. So maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, there's no way he's going to kill Jonathan. He didn't hear the oath. How can you do that? That's unjust. It's not fair. It's not rational. Even in the military code of justice, if you don't hear the order, you're not responsible for it. Maybe maybe they came up with that because of Saul. I doubt it, but verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. So Jonathan, the crown prince, and Saul are on one side, the people are on the other side, and they're going to have God say, okay, pick this this one. And uh, again, Saul knew that Jonathan tasted the honey because people are going to come tell Saul. Because that's what they, some of them are are obsequious, some of them just covering their own tail. I'm not going to be the guy that someone points out, I knew it and didn't say anything. God is going to overrule in this process here to expose Saul, just like he did with the witch of of Endor, where God overruled uh, her also in the presence of witnesses. So the drama king um, exploits Jonathan's supposed disobedience in order to appear what? What is he trying to do? Does he want to eliminate a competitor for glory? Because Jonathan was out making things happen. Well, I mean, that wouldn't be far-fetched. David's going to suffer that. I don't know that that was it. But it's it, sure, you can make a short list very quickly of what his motives were for grandstanding here. Why can't you just shrug it off, Saul, or just do something else but this intense? Even if it's my son, he's going to die. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Again, I, they've got to be saying he's going to pardon the boy, because, well, the man. They're going to pardon. He's going to pardon the man because he never heard the order. Verse forty-one. Therefore, Saul said to Yahweh, God of Israel, "Give a perfect lot." So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So the Lord has no problem answering now, because he's going to expose him. So God says the people are innocent. They're not to be held accountable for slaughtering the meat with the blood in it and, and eating it. And, of course, Saul totally doesn't care less about the, what he did to make that happen. Uh, but Jonathan, on the other hand, he's going to be held accountable for violating Saul's oath. The people are freed from violating God's commandment, but Jonathan cannot be freed from violating Saul's silly oath. Uh, how does it become an oath if you don't, you know, agree to it, if you've not given the chance to object? I think when Samuel hears about all of this, by the time we get to chapter 15, uh, he's ready for God to say, I'm getting another king. I, I think mentally Samuel is ready. Emotionally, he really never was ready because he loved Saul and he wanted it to work. It was Israel's first king. And what a letdown. Verse 42 And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. And, uh, you know, Saul, again, in in egotistical, impenitent, sociopath that he is, he's got to be in the limelight because he knows he didn't break the oath. So Jonathan's going down. You treat your own child this way. I mean, to treat a stranger like this would be difficult. But your own son. Verse 41. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. Now, this isn't gentle Joshua saying to Achan, tell me, son, what did you do? You're still going to die. John, I mean, he had to execute justice, but at least he was just gentle. I don't think there's anything like this. Here's why. Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so I must die. Uh, that was not a confession of guilt. That was an admission of fact. And they're not always the same thing. I think Jonathan is amazed at uh, the pettiness uh, that is going to take his life. He's gonna, he, he survives on the battlefield fighting the Philistines. His own daddy comes home, I'm going to kill you for winning the war for us, or getting it going. Honorable Jonathan. He's prepared still to submit to his father and his injustice. What else could he do? He's too noble to do something that's shameful or to to beg for his life. 
Saul created this condition. Whose fault is this? That a righteous man has got to stand there and endure this. Where's David to come running out the woods with a club in his hand? (laughs) We need Phineas. Why do people like this exist? They do. And when you get to heaven, you really won't care about the answer (laughs) as long as they're not here. I don't need to know why they were doing what they were doing. I just want to know where's the salad bar. Verse 44. So Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Oh, man. I mean, Jonathan's brothers are probably there too. For Saul, obeying God was a hindrance. But for others, to disobey him was a capital crime. The episode that further confirms that he is evil. Not a jot or a tittle of mercy. Not even, and just not anywhere. I have here uh, from chapter 13, I'm not going to read it because of time, but uh, there in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 13, Samuel uh, is the one that says, you've done foolishly. Now God's going to pick a man after his own heart because you don't have God's heart because God's heart has mercy. It has justice also. And if you say, well, I just want the mercy, but I don't want, don't want the justice, then the mercy is probably going to be canceled out. They have to go together. And it, it's a wonderful system to the recipient of mercy who would submit to the Lord a contrite heart. So this man's loss of contact with reason and therefore reality, I mean, when you just can't reason, your reality is you become delusional. And it, it gave rise, this is important, it gave rise to deadly violence. This is the first time he gets deadly now with the, those of his own kind, with God's people. So it's been taking steps there, and now it's, it's essentially here. It's going to get worse, not in this chapter, but later on he will go ahead and shed blood of innocent people because his image was stained. He has become so self-absorbed that he will kill his own son to protect his image. Just like Satan. Satan's image. Any threat to Saul's self, his self-esteem, would be, you'd face deadly retaliation. And therefore, everything he touched turned to misery. Verse 45. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As Yahweh lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Can you believe it? The people have to rise up and interfere. They have to, they have to order the king to not kill his own son. That's what it takes to corral a, a, a fool like this. Blinded and bound by self-esteem. He esteemed himself. Arrogantly so. Uh, Has nothing to show for any of this. He cannot step in front of the people and say, well, I brought the victory today. I protected you from the enemies. We're going to get a little history of him, and I'm I'm sure it's just a lot of it is just left out. Well, it is, but I, I would love to know the details. Verse 46, then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. Well, we should read from delaying the pursuit of the Philistines. Because all the time it took to do this whole thing, to rally everybody together, to get them to pass by, to pick this one, to argue it out. And the Philistines went to their own place. Well, that's the end of the campaign that started with Saul attacking the garrison there at, uh, in, in Geba. Verse 47 So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zorba, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. So this is a summary of Saul's military career as king, and a brief genealogy is coming. Uh, None of this includes David, not yet. Uh, So he was doing what God said the king would be assigned to do as a divinely appointed mission. Verse 48, And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And so, 
he, he does that. Does it, is it difficult for me to even applaud these victories? Yep, because a guy like him will abuse it. Uh, verse 29, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshuai, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters, the names of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the other, as we would say, Michelle. Um, it's pronounced differently in that vernacular. Verse 50, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the, and the daughter of Ahineaz, why do I do it? And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Now, Abner will meet a nasty death at the hands of Joab uh, many years from now. Verse 51, Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And verse 52, now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Well, that recalls Samuel's warning in chapter 8 that an earthly king would do just that. So the difference between Saul and his choice men and David's choice men is, is this. David's men, for the most part, they loved him. Saul's men were terrorized by him. I would wish Saul on no one. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your word packs a punch and always calls us out that a man would examine himself to see whether or not uh, they are in the faith according to your word. We thank you for your gentleness with us and uh, we pray that you would find us responsive to your, your love. We ask that you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.